evening will be in 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Our sin creates all kinds of trouble. David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah was was a great cause for trouble. Their baby boy has already died. War has erupted among David's sons. His oldest son has raped his sister. His third oldest son has murdered the oldest son. And all the while, David lays low and doesn't respond to the murder that has taken place within his own family. Instead, he responds with anger, but then passivity and a kiss. And while David is not immediately responsible for the sins of his sons, right? they are the ones that are going to have to stand before God to, to respond and give accountability account for their sins. David's not responsible directly or ultimately. What we do know from the text is that he is partially responsible for their straying from God, particularly for Absalom. Because David fails to act when Amnon rapes his sister and instead he just kind of ignores the situation and hopes that it will go away. And because he fails to act, the consequences only get worse. The anger in Absalom only gets worse. And so, while David doesn't respond toward Absalom, the problem is not solved. Absalom grows in anger and frustration as he lives three years with his grandfather and then two years back in Jerusalem, but not able to see David. And when they finally meet after five years, five years after the murder, David still doesn't address Amnon's sin or Absalom's sin. He simply gives him a kiss. And the reason that David's culpability is so important is because in chapter 15, David now is going to be the object of intense opposition from this same Absalom. And what we need to see is that while David bears some responsibility for this opposition, God is merciful to him nonetheless. God does not abandon him. Even though David could have handled the situation differently and it could have turned out differently, yet, even though David has some responsibility for Absalom's sin, God does not abandon him. So let me read the first 12 verses of the text, beginning in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 15. This is the Word of God. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and fifty men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit, that is a lawsuit, to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of 40 years, probably four years, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, 
saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then two hundred men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo, which he was offering, or while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. David now is going to be the object of his son's wrath. And he's going to receive much opposition as Absalom steals away the hearts of the people and then, through a conspiracy, gains a bunch of support from the other people who, don't, who haven't given their heart to him. And as a result, David's going to have to go on the run, as we'll see later on in the chapter. And what this text, I think, teaches us is that when opposition comes, God uses faithful friends and answered prayers to strengthen us. That when opposition comes, even when it's our fault, that God is faithful to us by sending friends and and answering prayers to help strengthen us. So in these first 12 verses, we see the opposition that's coming. Opposition comes to David in the person of Absalom. Absalom has been really a non-factor. David hasn't dealt with the situation. But now Absalom's going to start to become more proactive in his opposition toward David. And it begins with his deception of the people. Absalom is a crafty and arrogant young man. He, he senses weakness in his father. He senses weakness when his father doesn't come and, and judge his son Am, Amnon when he rapes his sister. And then when Absalom murders his brother, still David does nothing. And so Absalom sees this and decides, my dad is weak. And I'm going to take the reins from him. I'm going to be the king. So, first he, he seeks to build, build a, um, a following through deception, and then he's going to do it by force if necessary. I mean, for Absalom, he can't just walk into the palace and take over the throne. He doesn't have a big enough following. D- David has too large of an army for Absalom to do that. And so first he has to deceive some people and get them over to his side. So step one, in verse one, he builds up a small military, 50 men and some chariots. This is why I say he's arrogant because chariots aren't the best uh, weaponry or mode of, of war in Israel because of the rugged terrain. But see, Absalom had lived in his father's land for three years and had likely seen how his father, his grandfather, the king of Syria, would handle uh, those uh, different things. And, and maybe he saw the, the chariots and so on. Maybe the other nations were using chariots as well. And so maybe we can now use chariots in our, in our battle. It, it'll put fear in the, the eyes of the people on the other side of the line. So he builds up a small military. Step number two to his deception is to gain the affection of the common citizen. Gain the affection of the common citizen by making appealing promises. And this is found in verses 2 through 4. Absalom would stand outside the courthouse effectively. This is actually at the city gate where all the court proceedings would take place. 
and he would commiserate with the people who were making a, uh, uh, were lining up to have their cases heard. So in those days, you didn't necessarily have a date when you'd come before the judge, who happened to be the king as well. Instead, you would just line up, and whoever was there would get their case heard. In verse three, no one listens. He, he says, "No one listens to your claims." He commiserates with them. You know, I, I know how you feel. Nobody cares about your claims. But here's the thing I care. I want you to know that if I were king, if I were judge, I would listen to your claims and I would grant you justice. He says, My father, David, is not concerned about any of those things. He doesn't want to make my, uh, he, he doesn't want to respond to you. He's only using you as pawns. Now, the question is, would Absalom be good at making judgments for the people? I mean, would Absalom have the wisdom to be able to make the proper judgments for the people? And the answer is, we don't really know. And for Absalom, it doesn't really matter because he never gets the chance. And in fact, he doesn't care if he gets the chance because it's not why he wants to become king and judge. He wants to become king and judge for the power. He wanted to make a claim when it was when it was a, a, a beneficial time for him. And so he can make these claims, these fake promises effectively, I'm going to be a good judge for you without having to follow through on them. He's a guy who can easily make empty promises much like our modern day politicians. right? Good at making promises, slow in following through with them. This is Absalom. And the step, step three, step one is to build a small military. Step two is to gain some support from the common people. Step three in verses five through six is to gain the affection of the people by treating them like friends. So not only did he say, I'll take your case and I'll actually listen to your case and give you a judgment. Isn't that what you want? But, but also when they would come, normally what they would do for the, the king and his family is they would bow down to him. This is the prince. This is one of the, the king's sons, right? And so they bow down. They get ready to bow down. Before he does that, hold on, hold on a second. Come here. And he, he accepts them, embraces them as a friend. So these promises to, to listen to their case along with combined with his friendliness and combined with his natural look and charm resulted in the people taking his side. So that at the end of verse 6 it says, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Right out from underneath the nose of David. He's stealing David's uh, people. And, and getting them to come to his side. David certainly must have heard about what was going on. Certainly some of his servants told him that what Absalom was doing. But again, David, as he's so good at doing, he does nothing. In verses 7-9, through 9, we see Absalom's deception of his father. So it begins with his deception of the people. And then in verses 7-9, through 9, his deception of his father. Once Absalom builds up enough political capital among the people, he's ready to capitalize on his efforts. But in order to make the next part of the plan work, he has to set up his throne in Hebron. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in just a second. But before he could set up his throne in Hebron, he, he could not allow his father to be suspicious. Right? If, if David knew that Absalom had the plan of becoming king and, and establishing his throne in Hebron, then David would stop it. And so what, what, what Absalom does is he goes to his father craftily 
And he asks his father for permission to go to Hebron to perform a sacrifice. You know, when I was up in Gesher with Grandpa, I promised God that if I ever was able to make it back to Jerusalem, that I would offer a a sacrifice of praise to him, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. And so now I want to follow through on that. Again, remember that he's already been in Jerusalem for two years now. And now, all of a sudden, he wants to, to go to Jerusalem. David says, fine. He doesn't see anything suspicious about it. And then in verse 7, uh, it says, Now it came about at the end of 40 years, and, and I would argue that that's probably four years, as you might have in the margin of your Bible. It doesn't make sense for this text to, to have 40 years, as most of the translations have, because David was only king for 40 years. So that wouldn't make sense. Um, and also, Absalom was probably only in his early 30s when this took place. So he, it wouldn't be after 40 years that, that Absalom said to the king, this is not that long of a span. It would be after four years. So he has killed Amnon, waited up in Gesher for three years, come back down, and perhaps four years after that, that Absalom decides to to take this opportunity to try to become king, to steal the throne from his father. And so he promises or tells his dad that he's going to make a vow, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, at the end of verse 7, down in Hebron. And in rea- reality, what he's doing is he's going down to set up his kingdom. And he was going to take with him 200 of David's most trusted leaders who didn't suspect a thing. So the other advantage of deceiving his father is that he's able to take all these other people to go along with the prince as he's going to, to offer this sacrifice. And they are going to get there not knowing that, they're going, that they are being deceived. And as a result, they're going to have to make a choice. Now, maybe at this point, David suspected some kind of betrayal, but again, he does nothing. He says, go, do what you plan to do. In verses 10 through 12, we see Absalom's betrayal. Possibly. Verses 10 through 12, Absalom's betrayal. The path has been blazed for Absalom to steal the kingdom from David. He's gained the support from the common citizens. He's, ra- he, he's remained underneath his father's radar where his father doesn't know what's going on. And now he just has to do one more thing. These tw- 200 people who go along with him, he's going to have to coerce them into switching loyalties. Into turning from following David to following Absalom. And so in verse 10, he sends spies ahead of them to make false claims so that at the sound of a trumpet, they would all... Cry out, Absalom is king. And these 200 men who come with him in verse 11 would have nothing else to do but to follow Absalom. They were stuck in a bad spot because if they stood up to Absalom and stood up for David, what would happen to these 200 men? They'd be killed, right? Absalom would just kill them. So they have a choice. Do we want to live and follow Absalom or do we want to die? by standing up for David, and so apparently they choose to live. Absalom put him in a difficult spot. Verse 11 says, 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently. So again, they don't know what's going on. Verse 12, And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong. So not only did he gain the support of the common person, 
He stayed under the radar of his father. He now gains support from Ahithophel, David's number one trusted counselor. But also these 200 men have nowhere to turn. They have to follow Absalom or they will die. And Ahithophel is a significant character in these developments. As Absalom is offering sacrifice, offering sacrifices, Ahithophel shows up and Absalom somehow gets Ahithophel to switch loyalties as well. Turn over to chapter 16 because I want to show you how significant Ahithophel is in the life of David. The text says, The advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one inquired of the Word of God. So it was as if a person went directly to God and heard from Him. That's how significant his voice was. So The end of the verse says, So was all the advice of Ahithophel, of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. So both of them took Ahithophel's advice as a message from God. He was that kind of speaker on behalf of God. And so for him to switch loyalties from David to Absalom is significant. Now, why would he do such thing? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but, but what we do know from other parts of Samuel is that Ahithophel, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba and the great-grandfather by blood of Absalom. Remember, Absalom is the daughter of, of Bathsheba. Maybe he despised David. Maybe Ahithophel despised David for stealing Bathsheba from Uriah. How could you possibly do this to my granddaughter? And now he's taking out revenge on David by switching loyalties. Well, whatever the case, Absalom's plan actually works. At the end of verse 12 it says, And the conspiracy was strong. And the people, for the people increased continually with Absalom. That is, the people who are on his side. Now, consider how Absalom comes to take the throne, effectively, and how David comes to have the throne. Right? Do you remember how David got the throne? It was not by force. He had several opportunities to kill Saul. Even though Saul was, had David as his number one enemy, he had opportunities to defend himself and kill Saul, but he didn't. Even though, for David, it was actually promised to him that he would be the king. Instead, he waited for God to give him the kingdom. He didn't parade his servants around announcing his position. He humbly accepted the kingdom from God in his timing. Absalom is so much different. He takes it by force. And David's going to find out about Absalom's betrayal. And the question is, how will God care for David in the midst of severe opposition? How is God now going to care for David in the midst of severe opposition? And I think God cares for David in two ways. Number one, God uses faithful friends to strengthen us. So by application, us. But, but here in this text, we see God uses faithful friends to strengthen David. But God uses faithful friends to strengthen us. Verses 13 through 29. First, we see that God encourages David through loyal servants. Verse 13 reads, Then a messenger came to David saying, The heart's of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, 
or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to go, ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. So in verse 13, David learns of Absalom's betrayal. In verse 14, he decides, I'm not going to have a battle, especially if it's going to be here in Jerusalem. That would not be productive. So I'm going to go on the run and see what God will do. So he gathers his servants in verses 15 through 18, the ones who are loyal to him. And I don't think that David expects this to be permanent. I think he expects God to eventually resolve this conflict. But, and the reason I say that is because of verse 16, he leaves his ten um, lesser wives there to care for the palace. So God encourages David through these loyal servants. Not everyone abandons David in this time, although he does have some significant people who, who abandon him. Secondly, God encourages God encourages David through loyal Philistines. This is maybe a little bit more surprising in verses 18 through 23. Verse 18 says, Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So God encourages David through loyal Philistines. The reason I know these are Philistines is because they're Gittites. Gittite, Gittites come from the city of Gath, and Ittai was apparently from the city as well. Remember, the Philistines had five main cities that they controlled and where they lived, Gath, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Ashkelon. So Gath is where these come from. And apparently they have now come to Jerusalem to be a help to David. And David said, you just came here yesterday. Now, it could be embellishing a little bit, like you just came this year or something. But, but the point is, you just recently came and now you want to come and, and go into a place of hiding and danger with me? And Ittai says, as the Lord lives. In other words, I swear to the Almighty God, I take an oath in front of God that I will follow you, that as you go, I will go, whether it be in life or in death. This is a, a Philistine saying this, someone who probably has turned in faith to God at this point. We don't know where they came from or why, um, maybe David made friends with the Philistines when he was hiding out in Gath, when he was running from Saul. But whatever the case, God somehow uses people who you would not expect to encourage him. And I think God does the same thing for us. 
Yes, there are some people who are loyal to us, um, who are close to us, and we expect them to, to walk with us through dark times. But, there, but other times when we go through deep opposition, there are other people who come along and we, we think, why would that person ever uh, be, be faithful to me in this situation? Why would they not fall away as well? The fact is that when persecution comes, God often strengthens and encourages us by mercifully providing friends who will walk with us. And so David and all his men head down the hill of Jerusalem. Uh, remember, Jerusalem's on a hill. They head down the hill of Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Valley, and up the Mount of Olives in verses 22 and 23. Thirdly, we see that God encourages David through providential intel. God encourages David through providential intel. In other words, he gives him information that he otherwise wouldn't have had, and he does that through some faithful servants of him, his who will stay on the inside of Jerusalem and pass word back to him. Verse 24, Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. So they're ready to go. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he, God, should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimeaz and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. David here has more support from his friends. Here, in this case, the priests and the Levites who have possession of the ark of the covenant. And they think the best place for the Ark of the Covenant to be is with the man whom God chose to be king. But David says, no, why don't we send you back to Jerusalem and you'll be my intel, but, but also you need to go back because uh, I think David recognized that the, the Ark of the Covenant was not a lucky charm like Saul saw it, right? When, when Saul was losing the battle, he, he sent for the priests, bring out... The Ark of the Covenant. Of course, they still lost and the Philistines ended up stealing the Ark of the Covenant because that's not what the Ark of the Covenant was meant for. It was meant to be um, a, a symbol of God's presence and also a symbol of God's, God's mercy to them. They used it like, like a rabbit's foot. And David's saying, I'm not going to do the same thing. And in fact, God may be using this opposition to judge me or to discipline me. You know, for my sin, God may be doing this. Notice verse 25 again. He says, Return the ark, of the, God, the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then He will bring me back again and show me both it and His habitation. But if He should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let Him do to me as seems good to me, good to Him. So, so God may be using this time just to, to fulfill the promises that He's made to me because I've sinned against Him. But God mercifully, even during this time of opposition, allows these men to be faithful to Him, be on the inside, to know what's happening. Because Absalom's not going to suspect anything when they stay in Jerusalem. Right? If they stay in Jerusalem, it looks like they're now loyal to Absalom. They're going to become important in the next 
few chapters because they're going to have some important details that they pass on to David. I think God also uses not only loyal friends or faithful friends to strengthen us, but God also, in our times of opposition, uses answered prayers to strengthen us. David, as he often does, turns to God in prayer in verses 30 and 31, and then God responds by answering his prayer in the next verse. Verse 30, And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel, counsel of Ahithophel foolish. What a discouraging time for David. God had been faithful to him in protecting him from Saul, seeing God establish his throne, seeing God promise an eternal kingly line, and now it seems to all be slipping away as he climbs back up the Mount of Olives, weeping with his few followers. And then if that weren't bad enough, in verse 31, one of his closest, probably his closest advisor, Ahithophel, betrays him and takes sides with Absalom. And when David learns of it, the very first thing he does in verse 31 is he prays that Ahithophel's purposes will be thwarted. And then in verse 32, God responds. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped that behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. So here's the answer to prayer. It's Hushai. Hushai is going to be the one to actually be the cog in Ahithophel's wheel. Ahithophel's got this plan to destroy David and allow Absalom to reign as king and Hushai is going to be the one that God uses. And so right after David prays, Immediately, we might look at it from a human perspective, coincidentally, he shows up. But it's not coincidental, it's providential. And when David sees this, he sees this, I think, as an answer to his prayer, and so he acts. He doesn't sit on his hands and say, okay, looks like God's going to do this, I'll just do nothing. Instead, he acts. Look at verse 33. David said to him, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, As I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant. Then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Okay, so do you notice that language? What did he pray in verse 31? Make the counsel of Ahithophel foolish. Then at the end of verse 34, see, if you do this, Hushai, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. Verse 35, are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house that is, Absalom's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So David uses this as an opportunity to see God answer his prayer. God, would you make the counsel of Ahithophel foolish here on David's doorstep? is Hushai. Hushai, don't come with me. Go back to Jerusalem and you can be the one who hears from the king. And we'll see how that plays out in the next chapter. The story of Absalom is beautiful for its authenticity. What I mean by that is that if David were perfectly good and appealing to everyone, if he were the spotless character and Absalom were were 
dressed in black and, and always evil, always ugly, always unappealing, then we would say, we would clearly see where good is and where evil is. We would see it like black and white. But the Bible shows Absalom as someone who is attractive, someone who is appealing, someone who appears to be kind-hearted and wise and thoughtful and desiring of justice for his sister. And yet, we know that he is the evil character, right? On the outside, he might look all buttoned up and holy, and yet he's actually exalting himself above God's appointed king. David, on the other hand, we would like to just see him as this hero and never having any faults, but that's not how we see him at all. Instead, we see him with all of his flaws. We see that in many ways he is reaping what he has sown. He doesn't always respond with an act of truth and righteousness and courage. Instead, he is a flawed character who makes wise choices sprinkled with foolish choices and often abdicating his responsibility as leader. And what we can learn from this is that God still uses us even though we are largely flawed. That God still uses us when we are even partially responsible for our own trouble. When we perform self-inflicted wounds like David. This opposition is not all of David's fault, but it certainly is partially his fault. And so here's the main application tonight. It is this. When opposition comes, even when we are largely responsible for it, God mercifully cares for us. When opposition comes, even when we are largely responsible for it, God mercifully cares for us. And He cares for us in this text in two ways. One, He sends faithful friends who are willing to walk through the time of opposition with us. And two, He answers specific prayers. Have you found God to be faithful in this way? Have you been through the deep valleys of life, sometimes created by your own missteps, by your own sin? And yet, have you not found David's experience to be your experience? That even when we are largely responsible, God still is merciful to us. Now, Admittedly, there are some times when we just go through trouble that is completely outside of us, that it is unexpected and unsolicited provocation on our part, that it's not our fault, like, like what Job experienced, and Joseph, and Jesus. And we obviously know during those times that God is faithful to them, and He's faithful to us when we experience those unsolicited times of trouble. We can be sure that in those times that God is there and that He is faithful and that He will see us through. He may not remove the opposition immediately. He may not remove the opposition until we die. It may end in our death. But what we do know is during those times of unsolicited opposition, God will be faithful to us all the way. But there are other times, and this I think is a focus of this text, the opposition that we face comes because of the consequences of our sins. The opposition that we experience, the trouble that we are facing, is because 
of our passivity, perhaps, or our direct disobedience to God. And what we know is that we're unable to go back and change those past actions, aren't we? But here's what we can be confident about. That no matter what, whether it's deserved opposition or undeserved opposition, that we who trust in God will not be abandoned by God in time of trouble. Whether it's deserved or undeserved, we who trust in God will not be abandoned by God in the hour of trouble. God knows our weakness. He knows our trouble. And He is often referred to in the Scripture as a Father who is loving, who runs to us and encourages us. And He provides, like in this text, He provides faithful friends who will walk through through the trouble with us. He provides direct answers to prayer to remind us that He is there and that He cares. And David knows that God is faithful. David knows that God will not abandon him in times of opposition. In fact, it's at this time that he writes the third psalm. Let me finish our time tonight by reading Psalm 3 for you. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Let's pray. Father, we can think of times in our lives when we have experienced opposition that was undeserved in the sense that that we didn't sin against you in order to bring it about. There's just many things that we experience in life, many troubles that just come because of the nature of the curse that is on this earth because of our sin. That, That we groan with the rest of creation for the time when you will restore all things. And so we experience many times undeserved opposition. But Lord, we also know of specific times when the opposition that we face, the consequences that come, are a direct result of our sin, or at least an indirect result, because of our passivity or because of our clear violation of your laws. And Lord, we're thankful that even when we are partially responsible for the opposition that we receive, that you are not one who is quick to abandon us. In fact, you are slow to become angry with us. You are continually merciful. You are loving and you are kind toward us in our hour of trouble. And you are the one 
who comes and lifts up our head. When the opposition is caving in all around us and we feel like there's no way out, you are there. We're thankful that you remind us that you are there through loyal friends who walk through the trouble with us and also through direct answers to prayer. Lord, may your spirit encourage our hearts and and cause us to desire not to get into those places where we bring about self-inflicted opposition, but that when we do, that we can be confident that you are on our side, that you love us, and that you will bring us to a place of, of ultimate holiness when we make it to the next life. Or do you love, you, you discipline those whom, who you love. And so when we receive discipline from your hand as a result of our sin, we count it as your love. You care for us enough to um, keep us from going on into greater sin and greater destruction. And so, Lord, draw us back as a loving shepherd. Pull us back in close to the fold. Help us not to stray. And when we do, Lord, be at our sides and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to acknowledge our sin, confess it, and to forsake it. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.